With much of the retail world on pause, grocery stores are looking for new ways to keep employees and shoppers safe. Meanwhile, many shopping malls across Europe, the UK, and the United States remain closed. In the US, federal social distancing guidelines remain in place until at least April 30th, resulting in a temporary store closure of nearly 50% of the retail square footage, according to Neil Saunders at Global Data. And this just in, Google has published reports based on anonymized mobile location data for 131 countries to show if visits to parks, workplaces, and shops dropped in March as people stay home to slow the spread of COVID-19. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, April 6th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Today, we're joined by Jason McNary and Steve Dennis. Jason is the chief executive officer of Spanish jewelry brand Uno de Cincuenta's North American market. He is also a Rethink Retail advisor. Steve is a strategic advisor and keynote speaker, a Forbes retail contributor, and is recognized as a top five global retail influencer. Steve's book, Remarkable Retail, will hit shelves on April 14th. Jason, Steve, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Across the globe, grocers are under pressure due to the pandemic and tensions between grocery workers and their employers have been on the rise as COVID-19 pandemic continues to place new hardships on these essential workers. And in France, according to trade unions, absenteeism in the supermarket sector has reached 10 to 15 percent, even nearing 40 percent for some stores. In the U.S., workers at Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, and Instacart are calling for greater protections against the virus. Whole Foods employees planned a sick out last week, while thousands are petitioning for Trader Joe's to pay its employees hazard pay. Instacart workers also held a nationwide strike last week with demands that they have access to coronavirus testing, as well as protective gear like sanitizer and gloves. Some global grocers like Walmart are responding by screening employees at the start of every shift, while grocers like Carrefour, Morrison's, Aldi, and Giant, to name just a few there, have installed clear shields at the checkout. So Kroger, on the other hand, has converted one of its U.S. grocery stores into a pilot pickup-only center, and it's suggesting it might do the same at other locations if the pandemic persists. Jason, Steve, to protect employees and the general public, should supermarkets and other essential retailers consider a temporary shift to a pickup or delivery only model? Is this even possible? You know, it's interesting because, you know, Target actually had plans to shift completely to a pickup and delivery only model. But then in the outbreak of COVID, they put this on hold and it was mainly due to the training. So they did not have the resources to continue to train their people on how delivery and curbside pickup would work. The idea in theory, I think, is a great idea, but I think that it just seems um, that it would be quite challenging for some of the retailers to make this shift right now. I tend to agree. I mean, I think I certainly think in concept, it's a great idea, but I think logistically, I mean, definitely the training issue. I totally agree with that. I don't know the exact numbers, but you need quite a few more employees to handle the similar volume that you would when it's basically self-service. So from a staffing perspective, obviously there's a lot of challenges. Many of the grocers I don't think have the technology in place for it to work smoothly. You know, the ones that have been testing it already or offering it already, clearly they can do it. I think the other thing, and I was just trying to picture this because there's a grocery store near me that does quite a lot of curbside pickup, but just the handling the cars, is not necessarily Hmm. trivial if you're not set up for it. You know, if you went to a complete curbside 
delivery model. The central market that's near me that has curbside pickup, I think all the central markets in, in Texas now have that. They've created completely separate parking, a separate entrance. And, you know, it's still a pretty small percent of their, their volume. I imagine it's gone up during this, this crisis. But, you know, if you were to go to a completely pickup model and try to do even remotely the same volume, I just think logistically, even if you could get the technology worked out, even if you had the employees trained, I think just logistically, it's very hard to pull off. Mm-hmm. I think of my local Trader Joe's, which even before the pandemic would always have cars struggling <laughs> find parking. Right. And you have to, you know, you have to somehow queue them up and and load them. You know, it's just I, I just can't picture how that's very practical, even though there's certainly from a safety issue. You know, New York City, for example. I mean <laughs> Yeah. You know, I mean curbside pickup. I mean, clearly most people in New York City are taking public transportation, but when you're asked not to take it at this moment, curbside pickup and delivery just simply would not work. It just would not. And most European cities, I'd imagine. No, absolutely. Well, it's interesting to note because um, some of the stats I pulled up before we we hopped on this podcast, online grocery just two years ago, UK was was leading the way, at least with the countries I researched, with 7.2% of people ordering groceries online. And France had about a little over 5%, Spain a little over 2%, and US a little over 2%. So to think how much uh, grocers are are dealing with right now is just uh, hard to imagine because the demand has certainly increased. I know that there's still a good amount of foot traffic, but if we look at other countries like China, who are hopefully on the mend right now, and they say they are, it was um, 20% growth in food delivery during January when they were really hard hit. So I know that there's um, a lot going on. And when we look at some of the European countries, I know that Uber Eats announced uh, last Wednesday that they were expanding their delivery services. So they partnered with Carrefour in France with Galp service station brand in Spain, and then a range of essential stores in Brazil. So we're seeing some good partnerships happening. But I would like to just ask you guys, will the rapid consumer adoption of delivery for groceries and curbside pickup be here to stay post-pandemic? Or do you think that it will uh, drop back down to the previous 2% numbers we're seeing, at least here in the U.S.? I think it's difficult to say. Uh, My general sense is that it will accelerate the growth that's been occurring. I would be surprised if it really changes their trajectory. And and there's two reasons for that. I, I still think, you know, there's fundamentally... And and this is true of more than than grocery. There's some fundamental reasons why people go to physical stores that e-commerce, you know, whether it's delivery or pickup, doesn't necessarily solve. You know, people enjoy the process. They like the food samples. They want to inspect the meat and fish. You know, I mean, there's just a whole bunch of things that, that you can't really replicate particularly well through grocery. So, but I think clearly... Some people that maybe had been hesitant to try it, you know, are basically forced to try it. And <laughs> right. I'm sure many people will go, oh, well, that actually is quite a bit easier than I thought, or this is super convenient for certain kinds of items and so forth. So I think it will accelerate it. I don't suspect we'll see sort of a wholesale change. The other thing I think is is a countervailing force, but it's hard to say how this will work out as well, is the economics of delivery and even curbside pickup are generally pretty terrible for the retailer. Mm. 
So clearly right now, I mean, they're out of desperation. They're trying to maintain their volume and take care of their customers and, and so forth. But if you look at it strategically, you want to be careful about how far you push home delivery or at least how you do it, because you could absolutely deteriorate your margins considerably. And it's not as if the grocery business is known for very high operating margins already. So, mm-hmm. so I, think, I think retailers will sort of slow walk, if that's the right term, this even if consumer demand really escalates more than, than I'm expecting it will. I think that um, the growth will continue, but I, I don't think that it will it will be at the rate of what it is currently, as Stephen said. I agree with Stephen that the customer really enjoys you know the experience that they get when they go into a grocery store. They want to pick their own um, vegetables. They want to be able to pick their own meats and fish, for example. So I think that that um, need to be present in a grocery store or market is really important. And then I think that um, you hit the nail on the head. I think that it's very expensive to operate this type of a model. So I think that grocery stores will figure out how to make the experience safer uh, post-COVID for the consumer. And I think that they will continue to invest in the experience in the store and making that experience safer for the consumer. So it seems like both of you are on the same page that we'll see some growth, but the trajectory will more or less return to what it would have been even without the pandemic in terms of how fast online delivery grows for groceries over the coming years. And when you talk about the economics of grocery delivery, would you recommend to a grocer to figure out ways to optimize um, the digital experience and figure out how to transition impulse buying to an online format? Do you think they're already doing that? You know, there, this has been the tension, and I'm not I'm not trying to totally dodge the question or, or, or blow it up <laughs> too more broadly, but the inherent problem in a lot of e-commerce, despite its rapid growth, is this tension between what consumers want and what actually makes money. You know, e-commerce is generally not especially profitable, mm-hmm. as probably by now everybody knows. Amazon, you know, which is clearly the leader in all things e-commerce, barely makes any money in retail mm-hmm. and has had its supply chain costs as a percent of sales continue to rise. And everything that's transpired in terms of the delivery wars and certainly what's going on right now with COVID-19, it's hard to imagine how that squeeze on their margins isn't going to be greater. But then, you know, if you're competing with Amazon, as just about everybody is in some way, shape or form, you know, how do you maintain market share? So I think it's a really difficult and vexing challenge, which has been true for several years, but is, is only really, I think, going to be more obvious to people as we start to see financial results from retailers over the next couple quarters, that it's really difficult to keep pace with what consumers want and actually make any money doing it when it comes to um, most of e-commerce. So, you know, generally what I tell clients and what I talk about in my new book is, you know, you've you've clearly got to be responsive to customer needs and you've got to think about how to maintain market share and grow customer lifetime value, but you've got to pick your spots very carefully because, you know, growth that just deteriorates your economics is at some point is going to catch up with mm-hmm. keyword, but yeah, well, and, and, you know, at the risk of stating the obvious, you know, one of the things that's been true about Amazon and some of the other disruptive retail models, whether it's the home delivery guys or blue apron or whatever is they're basically, most of them are terrible business models, but they've been able to raise a lot of venture capital to support their growth. But you know, that they'll run out of cash at some point. 
not everybody, but many of them, but you know, the people that are trying to keep pace with it don't have that kind of, you know, they don't have the balance sheet. They don't have the cash. They don't necessarily have investors that are super excited about losing money for 15 years and hopes that, you know, eventually you'll <laughs> be successful. So it is really, it's really tough. And I think that this particular crisis is only going to shine the light on those dynamics and that dilemma more harshly. So I, I don't know how it will sort out. I think it's really hard to predict. Where I sit is that I believe that there's a white space here. So I think that there will be someone that will come along and focus on figuring out how to make this work and how to make it work in a way that is profitable, but also engages the consumer. When Jet recently announced, I think it was back in January, that they were stopping the fulfillment of their grocery delivery in New York City. Hmm. So um, they actually had a delivery service that I actually personally used but they um, stopped it to focus on uh, dry goods and other general merchandise, for, for example. The reason why they stopped this delivery was due to operating margins and not being able to really figure it out completely. But I do believe that there's a white space and I think that someone will come along and, um, and figure out how to make it work and how to make it profitable. I think that's true. I think one of the ways to get there, which is not always the way lots of retailers have have approached this, at least traditional retailers, is they've tended to think of of e-commerce and brick and mortar as these separate channels and often are organized that way and measure and give incentives based upon the different channel dynamics. And I think part of understanding how you can be profitable in this shift to, you know, whether it's home delivery or or just e-commerce more broadly, is to really understand at the customer level and at the trade area level, what your economics are like. So, you know, if you've got customers, just to pick the grocery example, maybe you have customers that will do home delivery for, you know, certain kind of bulky items, you know, bottled water or toilet paper or what have you. And you may say to yourself, well, if they're only ordering, you know, 20 or $30 worth of stuff and that's low margin already, I lose money on every order that I send to their home. But if most of their spending is on high margin stuff in the store, you may be fine with that mix. So, you know, I think that's one of the things that, that some retailers are, are pretty good at as they think about e-commerce is it's really, it's really all one thing. You know, the customer is the channel, but, you know, you have to get it right in the mix of things. But if you sort of look at it at the margin on a channel you know, on a separate channel basis, you may actually not pursue some opportunities, you know, not to get into a whole other thing, but I think that's what, you know, these off-price retailers that don't have e-commerce, I think what they're missing is they think about e-commerce as a separate channel and it's not, and they're missing opportunities, I think, to grow customer value. But, um, you know, I think that's one of the ways you find the white space, but certainly there, you know, there are other models where people will just pick particular areas or particular geographies and, and can make it work. Mm-hmm. But it must be tough, like both of you have said about the economics of grocery delivery for a lot of grocers who are relying, especially on third party services like Instacart or Uber Eats to do the picking and delivering where Target and Walmart have their own services in house and are probably better equipped for that. Well, I worked at home delivery with appliances and electronics earlier in my career, and I worked for several businesses that had their e-commerce started as, as mail order catalog. And, you know, there's a few things that you just can't change, you know, until we get to drone or robot delivery, right? Like, you know, you still have to have some person or, or persons, you know, in their car or on a bike or whatever, 
going to people's homes and you know there's a rate limiting factor or whatever they call it <laughs> just you know how how many deliveries can people make and how much product can they carry you know digital does not fundamentally change just this this issue or, and you know Jason talked about New York and back when I was in the furniture and appliance business you know we we had to, every delivery we did in Manhattan we had to send three people um, to two, climb two, 12 flights well, of stairs. Well, two people, three or four people, but, you know, two people to take the, the item up and the other person to watch the truck. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, assuming you could find even a space, and I don't mean because you're going to get robbed. I mean, you're going to get ticketed or whatever for blocking the street or so. So, I mean, there, you know, in New York, um, certain urban areas are certainly extremes, but there are some just underlying physical, logistical economics that that digital disruption does not fundamentally fix the front end it fixes and inventory allocation and some you know routing stuff i mean all that that stuff is technology enabled but until like i say until robots or drones really become something you know you still need some you know human beings to go Mm -hmm. make, make this happen and there's just limits to the windshield time and you know other related factors next up we'll talk about some specific retailer updates Macy's, Build-A-Bear, Victoria's Secret, and Bath & Body Works, among a lot of other brands, have furloughed the majority of employees as retailers face significant losses due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Tailored Brands, the parent of Men's Warehouse and Jose Banks, said it's keeping all of its stores closed until at least May 4th, while Nike will keep the majority of its U.S.-based locations closed for the foreseeable future. In Germany, Adidas and H&M announced plans to stop paying rent on stores that are forced to close due to the pandemic. H&M has shuttered two-thirds of more than its 5,000 stores worldwide and is reportedly considering to postpone rent payments in certain areas of the U.S. Many U.S. malls have shut down entirely, including Hudson Yards in New York City, the Mall of America in Minnesota, and the King of Prussia in Pennsylvania. Simon Property Group has also closed all of its 209 malls across the nation. Jason, Steve, how do you foresee traditional shopping malls coming back out of this crisis? Will there be a bounce back? Well, first of all, I certainly agree that this this is a really different kind of scenario than the financial crisis or or even going back to 9-11 in terms of the depth and um, breadth of how it's impacting people and, you know, just the overall uncertainty that I think is going to be with us for a little while. I mean, in the in the places where I have either either clients or the most contacts, which is you know mostly for traditional retail, both vendors and retailers. I mean, it's it's really really bad. Um, mm-hmm. I think that you know it's it's sort of hard to get your head around. I mean, even though like post the financial crisis, and I had just left Neiman Marcus at that point, uh, but you know the Neiman Marcus business was down like forty percent in that first month after the the meltdown, which is, you know, this is pretty staggering number. And I don't, I don't know what their, their exact numbers are today, but I mean, it's, it's down like 90%, you know? So, so, right. um, and it remains to be seen how quickly things will start to, to pick up. And I agree. I agree with Jason. I think there is, there is some hope from how China seems to be rebounding, but I think, you know, one of the other, a couple other factors, I think, I think there are two particular pockets, maybe, maybe more, but one is, you know, clearly we've been talking a lot in, you know, sort of the action right now in terms of the differences is between essential goods and non-essential goods. And obviously in most places around the country, around the world, businesses that fundamentally sell non-essential items are closed. And so I think one dynamic will be as those 
physical stores start to open again. Uh, if you're in the business of selling things that are not very essential or in particular quite seasonal, you know, I don't think you get that that business back, you know, depending on how long this goes. So, you know, as I think about the fashion industry or high end, right now is the heart of the full price selling season or should be. Yeah. And, you know, it's a little bit like the financial crisis just off season, particularly bad for the luxury industry because there were, it was the financial crisis was in September or started in September, basically. And that was when, you know, most, most of the uh, full price selling was, was going on. And then, you know, the business really shut off and there was a tremendous amount of markdowns. You know, this is going to be longer and deeper. So I think that's, you know, financially is a much bigger hit for certain kind of businesses. And I think, you know, once you don't, you know, if you don't go to that gala or you don't get your new wardrobe in place, you know, come July or August, you're, you know, you're starting to think about fall. You're not likely to go back and buy the same amount of stuff you might've bought in March, April, May. So, so I think, you know, we will see a disproportionate hit depending on the certain sort of categories. You know, on the other hand, if you were going to replace your dishwasher or something and you can't buy it right now, you know, once, once things open, you'll, you'll probably go back to buying it. So you'll, you'll see this dip, but you wouldn't necessarily fundamentally change the trajectory of your business. But I think the other thing, which is really, really frightening to me is some of these retailers that uh, went into this crisis very weak already. I wrote a thing a couple of weeks ago for Forbes about how, because I talk a lot about the collapse of the middle in my speeches and in my book. Um, but I was basically saying that I think the, the retailers that are in this very challenging middle place of being neither strongly value oriented or having some sort of real unique product or service offering, you know, many of those retailers, probably just about all of them have poor liquidity and weak balance sheets. And so, you know, having this sort of hit when you're already not particularly customer relevant and you have poor momentum and you don't necessarily have a lot of cash on hand or the ability to raise it. And, you know, in some cases it may just accelerate the inevitable, but, uh, you know, in other cases it may not have been necessarily inevitable that they would downsize or, or file for bankruptcy, but, um, you know, it's certainly going to make it that much more difficult to, to try to mount any sort of turnaround. So I think we're going to see quite a lot of not only bankruptcies, but consolidation. And so I think there are definitely segments which are going to be, you know, really, really bad. And, um, you know, and then there's the whole ripple effect of commercial real estate and vendors and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I did see that article on Forbes that you wrote. It was a great article. Good insights for anyone listening. You should check it out. Um, and Jason, to Steve's point about, you know, we might see a bigger dip in, in the luxury or higher end items. How are you as a leader in that space navigating this? You know, I think um, we have uh, switched our our mentality to focus on the financial side of the business. You know, I think that um, we are looking at the sales reforecast first to understand, you know, what the impact will be on the overall business um, with sales. And we're taking learnings that we've seen in China and our business there and um, then applying it to some metrics here to understand, you know, the impact that it will have on the overall business. But again, it's pure guessing because we don't know if the U.S. will be the same as China or not, but we are focused on the numbers. And then from there, we are going to be doing um, new um, reforecasted expenditures um, and budgeting process to help us arrive at really where 2020 will net out. 
I think bigger than that, we're focused on our people and our teams. And, you know, while they're not working, to how do we keep them engaged from a human perspective, if you will, um, with us? Um, and then the team that is currently working with me, we're working on strategy. What's the action plan going to be coming out of this? And how do we arrive to the numbers that we need to hit from a business perspective post-COVID? Going deeper, you know, we are focused on conversations with our landlords um, at the moment, our partnerships with several of the mall developers that are here in the U.S. market in Canada, partnering with them to, you know, again, what the impact will be um, on the mall traffic, what the impact will be um, on our sales based on the mall traffic after um, post-COVID working on some scenarios with the landlords that are going to be favorable to both parts. Absolutely. And it's great to hear that you're taking steps from from a human standpoint, because I know not even in retail and across industries and travel, um, people are panicking. So it's it's good to take a step back and, and think of um, how can we ease people's fears and just do the best we can. Steve, what advice would you give to retailers right now? Well, I think that where possible, but you know, this of course is, is easy for me to say, uh, where, where possible, I think, you know, some of the things Jason touched on, you know, focus, focus on relationships, you know, the strategic relationships you may have with, with the landlord vendor, whatever, focus on your employees, you know, understand that by now everybody does this, this is unprecedented, really difficult time. And I think come from a, a place of empathy and compassion as much as you can hopefully try to take a more long-term relational perspective than a short-term transactional perspective. Because I do think that loyalty and engagement and all those sort of good things, whether it's from the associate side or the customer side or partnership side, you know, people will remember that <laughs> over, over the long-term. Um, but I think, you know, the challenge is clearly some companies, you know, have the capacity, they're not staring at the edge of the precipice and worried about going over, you know, it's, it's easy to say, take the long-term view and you know, mm-hmm. invest in the future. Um, but unfortunately there are some companies that, that just really realistically can't, right. can't do that. Um, which is, which is, you know, I think the real, you know, the particular heartbreak from a business perspective, but I do think that at the risk of being, you know, sort of overly sappy or philosophical about it. I mean, I think, you know, we are all in this together, both, you know, from a purely human standpoint, but I think, you know, very little of the retail ecosystem operates, you know, independently. (laughs) Retailers need Mm -hmm. their vendors, they need to work with landlords, their supply chain partners, you know, there's this whole host of of players in the ecosystem. And I think it's, I don't want to put words in Jason's mouth, but, you know, I think it's, you know, it's in the, in the landlord's interest to have great brands like like Jason's companies as part of their their offering. And you know, you can go go across the whole whole spectrum and see how, you know, it's in everybody's interest to try to keep these relationships going and and keep business afloat as much as you can and then just get positioned strategically and creatively for when things start to improve. Mm-hmm. And I just have to ask because it's been uh, you know top of the news, but do you guys think Macy's will come back? I think they will actually. Um, you know, we uh, started a partnership with Macy's um, last year, 
And that partnership has been a very good partnership for both of us. They are um, doing a tremendous amount on the digital front to drive um, that side of their business. But I think also um, in-store, they are making improvements. Last year, they renovated State Street Chicago as a store. And I don't know if you guys have seen it, but if you haven't seen it, you definitely should. What they've done there is uh, pretty incredible for the consumer. And um, I know that they are looking to do some refurbishments in the 34th Street store that they had spoken about and written about um, recently. So I, I think Macy's will uh, you know, come out of this. It's just how they do it. And that will be to be seen. Um, but I, I absolutely believe that Macy's will be around post-COVID. I don't, I don't think they're going to go out of business. Macy's to me is sort of the poster child of for being a slightly better version of mediocre. Um, you know, they're challenged by the, the sh- continued shrinking of, I mean, this is all comments, you know, separate and apart from the current crisis, but you know, they've done quite a lot of things and are doing quite a lot of things, which I applaud them for, but you know, they continue to lose market share and they're playing in a space that continues to contract and I don't certainly see any reason why that's going to change. So I think when you're, when, even though they're among the better folks that are in this middle ground, so that I think will, is part of the reason why I think they'll be around, you know, for them to really be good, you know, they're a long way from that. And, and most of the things they're doing are, better, but they're not really, as I like to say, they're not really remarkable. So what may end up being to, to Macy's ultimate advantage, which is kind of a weird way to think about this as success, is that, you know, given that the, the sector they're in continues to contract and they're closing stores and they're certainly not making up for that, um, it's not possible really to make up for the store closings through e-commerce by itself, um, you know, they may benefit from a lot of the other players going away. Dillard's, Penny's, Kohl's, et cetera, consolidate a lot. Macy's is the better position player. We'll, we'll pick up some of that, that business. But again, I don't know that that's you know, necessarily a spectacular result. It's just that I think they'll be around for a while for sure. Well, I think Macy's has a lot of brand equity and I definitely personally love Macy's. So I, I would hope that they can come back from this. Um, one other question I just had for you guys is because we're seeing all of these um, positions being opened up by some of the major retailers, Amazon, Target, Walmart. And I'm assuming these positions are going to sort of act like seasonal demand or seasonal workers. Do you think that once the pandemic ends, because it will end, that uh, people just kind of go back to the jobs that they had? Or is it going to be I know that's oversimplifying it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that um, businesses tend to operate based on the needs of their business and the trend. And I think these businesses such as Target, Amazon, Whole Foods, et cetera, they have a, a demand right now for uh, talent because their business is um, driving them there. But when COVID ends and, you know, the cells flatline or go back to, you know, what would be normal for them, then their business will tend to take them in a direction where they won't need the demand of what they hired. So it's similar to what you said, like uh, holiday hiring. During the fourth quarter, uh, retailers uh, typically amp up their um, staffing in their stores so they're able to take care of the traffic that's happening. But then in January, that 
that demand goes away, the sales are lower, so the demand isn't there anymore, they tend to take the payroll down. So I think that when uh, COVID is over, you'll see um, retailers, um, you know, go back to their models that they were before. And some will maybe take a different approach. Some will probably um, have a more modified approach, not maybe taking it so far to go back to what was normal before, but maybe their business has uh, left them in a place of where they can um, support this new staffing matrix for their stores and for their businesses. But I think for the most part, in my opinion, you'll see businesses go back to what normal looked like for them as staffing. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I think, you know, for example, and I'm, I'm sure we'll see more of these reports, uh, Kroger reported a 30% sales increase off of whatever trend they had been on, but certainly not that kind of increase. And so, you know, you've got this phenomenon, which I think is, you know, absolutely short-lived, but, you know, you've got the, the stocking up, <laughs> you know, hoarding. Uh, activity, which is really just pulling demand forward. You've got the, I guess, for lack of a better term, the substitution effect of people aren't going out to eat as as much. They're eating at home. You know, you're just shifting units, I guess, not so much dollars um, from restaurants to to grocery stores and so forth. So, you know, presumably we go back to a more normal volume post the pandemic ending. The only, I think, small, relatively small, certainly compared to the numbers you quoted is I do think some retailers are going to see that there are some different ways of operating Mm -hmm. that are either more efficient for them and or meet customer needs better. So Mm -hmm. I I certainly think, I mean, it's been amazing to me, mainly because I worked for a couple of retailers that were pretty early in the game that buy online, pick up and store Mm -hmm. that so many retailers have been really slow to adopt that. Um, It's really picked up a lot. Um, This whole curbside checkout thing is, you know, again, some retailers have been piloting that and and been behind it, but many are being, you know, in essence, forced to do it. And I think that, you know, they'll discover that actually, even though I, you know, as we talked about earlier, the the demand's not going to be as high as it is during this particular period, but I think they're going to discover that, you know, maybe that actually works pretty well for them and customers really like it. And so there will be maybe a shifting of some talent. And in some cases that may require more people at the store level. But I mean, I think in terms of like fundamentally changing the hiring, I I think we'll be back to, you know, more or less the place, place we were in a few months. This is definitely unprecedented times for retailers, but I also think that each company has um, a select group of leaders that are, you know, there to drive the business and the strategy. And I think that, you know, um, we have to give, have faith in, you know, the leaders of the organizations that great decisions are going to be made and we'll put each company, um, you know, back out there when post COVID. This is a, a learning for everyone and uh, we'll be able to apply these learnings within our career. So I'm pretty optimistic about what will happen post COVID and looking forward to being here and, um, and facing it. Yeah, I think for me, I do have this, um, my book, Remarkable Retail, coming out on the 14th. And one of, this, one of the scary things when I was writing the book was that, you know, you always worry because, you know, books 
I finished writing the book basically back in October and, you know, now it's coming out. And so you always worry that the things you're, you're talking about back in September and October won't, you know, may, may sound silly or not as relevant by the time the book comes out or by the time anybody actually bothers to read it. But one of the things that I think has been interesting and certainly I did not expect anything remotely close to what we're going through, but, you know, the fundamental thesis of the book is it's all the pressures of shifting consumer demands and digital disruption just puts a even higher premium on retailers really coming up with more remarkable and distinctive strategies. And I think separate from the kind of balance sheet issues that and cash flow issues that retailers are going to have to work through over the coming weeks and months, I think it just really amplifies that it's even more true in, in difficult times. So, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the retailers that that didn't make the changes that watch the last, you know, 10 or 20 years happen to them are, are now, you know, particularly challenged by the current circumstances. But I think the fundamental themes are true. And, you know, my, my hope is that a lot of times the challenges that, that we find ourselves in personally and professionally will, will really cause us to, to maybe take a different path and look at things differently. And, you know, I, I do think there's some good that will come out of that for, for lots of folks and lots of companies. Certainly. We'll look for the silver lining. I see a lot of hashtags trending with that that phrase nowadays. So um, Jason and Steve, thank you both for joining today. It was a pleasure to have you on the show and hear your insights during these these tough times we're going through. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guests. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.